Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are days that I wish that I had an hour for this, and it's one of those days, but don't worry, I won't do that. At least I'll try not to. I want to look at 2 Kings with you. What we see in 2 Kings is actually the beginning of Elisha's ministry. The ministry that he received after Elijah was taken up into heaven. And I want to sort of scan out, step back from this individual story to see it in its context. Because Elisha has come back from the Jordan where Elijah was taken up and come into the land of Israel. And there's something really startling about the way that his ministry begins. If you look at the first scene that occurs after he comes into the land to begin his ministry, this is at the end of chapter 2, there's a group of people from Jericho who come to him and they say, this is a good place, but the water is foul and poisonous and the land won't grow any crops. You leap forward into chapter 23, and we see a group of kings with their armies in the desert wandering. And the message they bring to Elisha is, we're about to die of thirst. There is no water here. You jump forward to chapter 4, right before the passage we just heard, and we see a widow of one of the prophets coming to Elisha and saying, my children are about to be sold into slavery because I can't pay my debts. We step into the passage that we just read, and we see this noble, wealthy, godly woman who is barren. And then later, after she's given a son, we see this innocent young boy die inexplicably from some illness You leap forward from that story, and you see a group of Elisha's men, his disciples, the prophets, and there's famine in the land, and there's nothing to eat. And so they find wild gourds and make a stew out of what they can find, and it's poisonous, and the poison begins to work on them. You step forward one more scene, and you see the group of Elisha's disciples, again starving, And there's bread, but nowhere near enough to go around. There's famine in the land again. When you step back from the scene and see the whole, you realize that the land of Israel at this moment is marked by death. It looks like Mordor from Lord of the Rings. It looks like the fields of France after World War I. There's death everywhere you go. Death by poisonous and foul water. Death by a land that can't bear any crops. Death by debt and slavery, by thirst, by barrenness, by illness, by famine. The list goes on. Death everywhere you look. And you say, why is the land like this way? Why is there death everywhere you look? And the answer is quite simple. It is a land in rebellion against God. Israel, the northern kingdom, after the split from the southern kingdom, immediately erected two temples and put idols in those temples so that people wouldn't return to Jerusalem to worship the true God in his temple. It's a land marked by people who have rebelled against God and left God. 
and therefore it is a land of death. There are two stories embedded in the midst of this account that illustrate it. In one of them, early in his ministry, Elisha is confronted by a group of young boys, adolescents who come up and begin to mock him. It's a land marked by people having no respect for the word of God. No respect for what God might say to them. You step forward and we hear at the beginning of chapter 3 of this descendant of kings and we're told that Jehoram inherits the throne and he clung to the sin of the land. This idolatry. It's a land marked by this death. And we step back and we see in all of these passages together this reality that God is the only source of life. And when he's rejected... When people wander away from him, when they reject his word, when they worship other things, if he is the only source of life, there is nothing left but death. And the landscape is scorched by it, death at every turn. And the things that tragic in this scene is that in that landscape of death at every turn, even those who are innocent feel its weight. This noble woman, godly, feeling the weight of barrenness and the death of her son. This widow, who is the widow of one of the prophets, her son's about to be sold into slavery. The disciples of Elisha, starving in the wilderness. In the land of death, even the innocent and the righteous feel it. Even the innocent and the righteous live in its shadow. And yet Elisha comes into this land as a person of life. Because the story doesn't end in Mordor, in the killing fields of France. Elijah steps into it as a person of life. He represents God in their midst. He is a living picture of the presence of God, what we would call a type, a foreshadowing. And as a living picture of God in their midst, a source of life, he is a forerunner, a living prophecy of Jesus Christ himself. He steps into this land bearing life with him. And so in Jericho, where the water is poisonous and the land won't grow anything, the water is healed and the land is healed. He looks like God in Genesis 1 and 2, taking void and wasteland and turning it into a flowering garden with rivers flowing out of the garden. You step forward to that scene of drought, the kings dying in the desert with their armies. And Elisha calls forth running streams of water that fill the land. He looks so much like Jesus standing in John 7 saying, If anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He steps forward and we see this woman in bondage about to be sold, her sons into slavery because of death. And he comes and he breaks that bond and pays the debt miraculously. He looks like Jesus in Luke 4, standing in front of his hometown synagogue and saying, it is the time of the Lord's favor because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to those in bondage, freedom to those who are captive and oppressed. This woman bound in barrenness, he steps forward like God did so many times with Sarah or Rebecca or Hannah, or John and Elizabeth, or Zachariah and Elizabeth. He steps forward to this woman who is barren, holding that thing, barrenness itself, a picture of the weight of sin on the world, breaking God's intention of fruitfulness. And he steps forward to this barren woman, and a son comes because of it. 
He comes at the inexplicable death of this loved one, and he looks just like Jesus, raising the son of the widow of Nain, raising the son, the daughter of the synagogue official, raising Lazarus. At this moment of the death by poisonous stew, Elijah takes food that was death itself, and he turns that very meal into a meal of life, like Jesus taking the poisonous and treacherous murder of God himself and turning that poisonous meal into a meal of life for us. Elisha looks like Jesus. This moment of hunger in the wilderness, these men dying without enough bread. And again, he looks just like Jesus, multiplying loaves to fill every single stomach. It's a Eucharistic meal where the bread never runs out. Everywhere is death in this landscape, and yet everywhere Elisha goes, he brings life. He acts as a living picture of God, a type, a reflection, an image, a mirror. I think there's something beautiful here, a statement that even in a landscape of death, God still comes. Even in a place scorched by our own sin, where death is at every turn, God still shows up and brings life. He doesn't abandon us, in other words. Elisha is a picture of God coming into that place of death to bring life. And this Shunammite woman understands. She gets it. She sees him and realizes she calls him the Holy One of God. She has faith that God's presence is with him, that he is a living picture of the presence of God bringing life in their land. If Elisha is a picture of God, she is a picture of the faith-filled few the remnant, those who believe. She understands and gets it. There are two moments that are worth mentioning that demonstrate her understanding her faith. The first is this room that she builds for him. This is more than ordinary hospitality. Y'all may look at this and go, Stephen, this is fanciful, but bear with me for just a moment. She recognizes that Elisha is a living representative of God, and she, so she builds a representative temple for him on her roof. This is the point where you may say that's reaching, like the high school English teacher seeing things that can't be seen in that poem. But bear with me. God's abode is always at the top of a mountain, Sinai, Zion. And so she goes to the top of her house. And in God's abode, there is an enclosed place, a holy of holies, and so she builds an enclosed place. And she places there a table. Looks like the table for showbread in the holy place. She places a lamp, literally a menorah, like the lamp that is there. And again, you may say, you're reaching. But there's more. She puts a chair, a throne, a mercy seat. The ark itself was a symbol of God's throne. That's why its cover was called the mercy seat. That's why the Bible says that he sits enthroned above the cherubim, those angelic creatures on the top of it. She puts a representative of the ark there and a bed that he might dwell there because God dwells in the tabernacle. You may say that sounds outlandish. She doesn't see all that in her mind. But the thing that I would say is actually more outlandish is that God would take domestic furniture and put it in his tabernacle to indicate that he wants to live with us. And that's what she's trying to recreate in this room on her home, that the representative of God would dwell there. In other words, she recognizes what he represents, God in their midst. And so she builds a representative dwelling. 
The second demonstration of her faith and understanding is what happens after the death of her son. Because she goes to Elijah and she throws herself before him and she clings to his feet. And she looks so much like another faith-filled woman. The Canaanite woman of Matthew 14, clinging to the feet of Jesus on behalf of her young daughter. This woman understands that he represents God in their midst the presence of God bearing life everywhere he goes. We have a man of God, a prophet who represents God in the midst of a land of death, death caused by sin. Yet God doesn't abandon his people, and so this man of God comes bearing life. And we have a woman of faith who sees and understands God's presence in their midst. She represents the faithful remnant. She represents those who believe, those who can actually see the presence of God even in the land of death. This is what she represents. She represents the church. And yet this woman, this faith-filled woman, when her son was dead, came to Elisha and said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say do not deceive me. This faith-filled woman who represents the church comes to him and say, I didn't ask for this boy. Do you hear her grief? This was the verse that stopped me in my tracks this week. This woman of faith, this faithful remnant, this woman who represents the church, in her grief reveals that before her son was born, she suffered from deep Resignation. Those years of barrenness had taken a toll on her. She had grown so accustomed to heartache, so accustomed to the deep-seated belief that God would not work in her life, that when Elisha came proclaiming life to her, to her personally, she could see him as a picture of God's life in the land, but when he came and proclaimed life to her, she could not believe it. This woman of faith who suffered from deep resignation. She is so much like Sarah, the mother of God's people. In fact, the parallels are astounding. Sarah, in her own grief, and this is Genesis 18, also listened at a door and listened to what God said to her. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Sarah heard a same message. And yet in her grief and in her resignation, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Her laughter is not joy. It's resignation. God's words of life to her felt like mockery because of the pain that she had borne for so many years. This woman is so similar to Sarah, listening at a different door. Elisha called to her, and when he had called her, she stood in the doorway just like Sarah. And he said, just as God had said to Sarah, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she didn't laugh. She just said, no, my Lord, O oh man of God, do not lie to me. Do not deceive me. That grief, do you hear it? That pain, that resignation of years of unfulfilled hope 
both of them able to see that God is the Lord, both of them with faith in him, but both of them unable to come to terms with the fact that that life might work in their own life. And so they say, it can't be. It can't be. This stopped me in my tracks this week. And honestly, I just began to wonder how many things each of us have within us where we have just resigned to the fact that God won't work there. Places where we have buried hurt so deep, discarded that hope, hope that God would transform us in some way that we've longed, hope that he would bring us a heart of joy, hope that he would free us from a particular sin, hope that he would work in the life of someone that we love, that he would give us some gift of the Spirit, hope that he would free us from some scarring from shame or abuse. The Shunanite woman is a picture of so many of us. A part of the faithful remnant? Yes. She believes God. But even as she believes him, she's resigned to the fact that he probably won't show up to heal her deepest need. He won't show up to do for her what she longs for most. It's a stunning picture. We need to be careful with it because it would be wrong to try to flip resignation into an immature optimism. The message of this chapter is not, just go expect God to do that thing. Even in the story that follows her, grief and death continues to linger. The inexplicable death of her son afterwards is hard to reconcile if we're just supposed to flip our resignation to immature optimism that says, if I have enough faith, God will do whatever I want. That would be an inappropriate move to make. But I want to answer this grief and this pain by looking at the other passages. I want to move to the gospel to begin to understand this. In the gospel, the scene in Capernaum, we have this incredible night when the floodgates of heaven seem to break open. The word is spreading fast and people are gathering at the door and everywhere the people who are broken and hurting are being gathered to Jesus and he speaks life and healing to each one of them. And you can see the people dancing in the streets as they leave, spreading the word. He banishes demons, brings healing to those who are broken, restores sight and limbs. You have to imagine that Peter is over the moon. His mother-in-law is better. Who knows how long she had laid in that bed with that fever? Who knows how many times they thought she would probably die? His town is being transformed, and there is joy everywhere. And yet when Peter goes to find Jesus in the morning to say, the job's not done, Jesus says it's time to move on. It's time to move on. In other words, there are people left in Capernaum who didn't receive that healing. This is hard to handle. There are people who are left wondering, why not me? Why was I left out here? In his wisdom, there are people that Jesus chose to leave for another day, perhaps even till the day of the resurrection. In other words, even after the presence of God shows up, there is grief and pain on the other side of it in some wounds that don't get healed in that day. Some wounds that may wait for the resurrection to be healed. We wonder why God works the way he does. 
And he rarely gives us a direct answer to why some wounds are healed and others are left in us. We make up answers in our mind to justify the actions of God. But oftentimes he does not tell us so directly. And the danger is that in those unhealed places, the places of barrenness that still remained, it is very easy to begin to believe that God just is silent and will never heal that wound, will never listen to us. Perhaps do for someone else, but not for us. In other words, in those places, it is too easy to slip into the resignation of Sarah or the Shunammite woman. But there's a much better movement that we can take than descending into that resignation. Coming out of that resignation into an immature optimism that says, God will heal everything if I have enough faith, is not the right movement. Jesus left some wounds behind in Capernaum that day. Immature optimism that says he will heal it if I just had enough faith, the problem is that my faith's not strong enough, is not the movement of Scripture. But resignation that says he doesn't hear me and he doesn't care about my wound is also not the right movement. There's a movement of faith that we see in the psalm that is a better movement for us to take. In this psalm, David is also in anguish. He goes so far as to say, I am brought very low. He's a puddle on the floor in his fear. I am brought very low. And there seems to be some confidence, however remote, because at the tail end of the psalm, he actually says, when you show up, there is a little bit of confidence. But the answer to that psalm is not that when you show me your loving kindness. The answer to that psalm is the claim that he makes deep in the midst of it. When he says in verse 6, you are my portion in the land of the living. David is in deep trouble, in need of rescue. But he sees that the true hope is not his wound, his barrenness, his fear being fixed. The true hope is in knowing that God is actually his portion. This is the movement of faith. In the moment when we would be tempted to resign, in the moment when we would be tempted to give up because God is not answering our deepest prayer, in the moment when we would be tempted to say, he must not hear me because Jesus seems to have moved on. Those are the places where we actually have the chance to take the deepest step of faith. Those are the places where we have the chance where he might actually be calling us to step deeper into his presence and to realize that it is Jesus and not the healing of that wound that we actually need. That he is our portion that he is enough. His presence is the ultimate answer to a sin-scarred land. And his presence is the only answer to a sin-scarred heart. Because he is a God who has chosen suffering on our behalf, there is a communion, a knowledge of him that comes in the depth of suffering that can't come anywhere else. We will never get to the very heart of Jesus except for through the path of suffering. And those very moments where we are tempted to say, God must not hear me or God must not care are the very moments where we may be being called to take the deepest step of faith. 
So the answer to those moments is not resignation. Our God does and will heal every wound. And it's not immature optimism that said, I just need to gin up enough faith. Instead, it may be the call to step more deeply into his heart. So as we go about our day, as we go about our week, I would encourage you all to remember the resignation of the Shunammite woman. Remember the resignation of Sarah. And remember that for those who thought God would never show up in their life, he did. And he will. And yet his showing up may not look like that wound being healed. It may look like you being called into deeper and deeper communion with him. Amen.